Welcome to Broken Law, the podcast about the law, whose interests it serves, and whose it does not. Brought to you by the American Constitution Society, a 501c3 nonprofit, nonpartisan organization. I'm Jeannie Hareska, Senior Advisor for Communications and Strategy at ACS. Deep breath, everyone. The Supreme Court started its new term on October 3rd. That's right. Less than four months after this packed Supreme Court wiped out the constitutional right to abortion, kneecapped the federal government's ability to address the climate crisis, and tied the hands of states trying to address gun violence, we are bracing for a new term full of cases with equal potential to upend precedent and eliminate safeguards to our civil rights and to our democracy. We are going to delve into several of the cases on the Supreme Court's docket on this episode, the questions that these cases raise and how they could impact our laws and legal systems, and quite frankly, our lives, when the court hands down its decisions next year. Joining me for this conversation are two of my ACS colleagues, ACS Vice President of Policy and Program, Christopher Wright DeRocher, and ACS Director of Policy and Program, Lindsay Langholz, both of whom our longtime friends of Broken Law, Christopher and Lindsay, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us, Jeannie. It's so much fun to have to have regular <laughs> guests. Before we discuss the new term, I actually want to encourage listeners to go back and listen to our Supreme Court wrap-up from earlier this summer, from the, the court's last term, as well as episodes 58 and 60, which delved into the Supreme Court's decisions related to the First Amendment and Indian law. Episode 60 specifically also previewed Holland v. Brakeen, which will be taken up this term and is about the Indian Child Welfare Act. But both episodes are definitely worth listening to as we prepare for this new term. Christopher, before we get into the specifics and we just crush hopes and dreams, I want to provide a little bit of... I love crushing a dream. I know. I want to provide some context. So I'm going to start with just a big picture question, which is how would you summarize where the Supreme Court is right now, considering its last term? Well, I, I first I would say you did a great job of, of setting the table and all that the court did and accomplished on behalf of the conservative legal movement last term. And I would say that the court is, it's in an interesting position. You know, obviously last term, the conservative supermajority demonstrated that they really had little or no interest in judicial modesty or the idea of I don't think they know the word modesty, to be honest. Restraint is is not in their toolbox. it, It is not in their vocabulary. You know, remember back way back in the day and, you know, 2020 or even like early 2021 when it feels like eons ago right and a lot of smart people were like they're not going to come after roe directly roe is going to die a death of a thousand paper cuts well the supreme court took out its machete and did its worse and you know i think that in addition to what they did to roe in in the dobbs case and what they did with in in terms of expanding the second amendment in the bruin case that you mentioned they've clearly demonstrated their willingness to constitutionalize conservative policies like requiring the government to underwrite religious education and you know the fact of the matter is all of this lack of modesty it comes at a cost it's not free According to, you know, the Pew put out a, a 
poll at the beginning of September that showed that Americans are rating the Supreme Court more negatively than they have in the 30 plus years that Pew has been asking that questions in its polling. Basically, the court now has the the same approval rating as the other branches of government. And part of that, I think, is because they've crawled down into the muck of politics and people recognize that they're just like another political actor. And as a result, their their legitimacy is really certainly at risk, if, if not already gone, I would say. Yeah, they're in a full-fledged legitimacy crisis. And in addition Absolutely. to the Pew poll that you mentioned, I think the other telling one is Marquette recently released a poll that shows majority support for court reform and specifically court mm-hmm. expansion, which was not the case a year ago. I mean, that is a direct reaction to how partisan and out of touch this court is with the American public. Yes, the public has lost faith in this court. I think that's clear. Lindsay, how are you approaching this new term? We talked, and we're still talking about the impact of Dobbs, but that really dominated the ter- last term. It, you know, It's still dominating our lives. It's going to continue to impact our lives until it is somehow rectified. Either it's overturned or Congress takes action. So... How are you feeling going into this new term? Oh, you know, we're we're still standing. It's tough, right? It's a really tough moment for a lot of people because the Dobbs decision is having a real impact on people every day. And so to start up a new new court term and knowing what's on the docket is bracing for a lot of people. But, you know, I I have to remind myself of Justice Sotomayor's comments when she came to our national convention this past summer of, you know, you have no other choice but to to keep at it, to bring hope into your work and your perspective. And I have found myself trying to, to reach back to that quite a bit. But, you know, there are cases on the docket that I remain hopeful they could somehow find some kind of not horrible way to resolve. I'm not expecting great things, but that's how we define that is where we are now, right? <laughs> yeah. Is it it's not the worst possible option. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, And I I do want to take a note and say, you know, the one shining light heading into this is Justice Katanji Brown Jackson, right? We now have the first black woman on the Supreme Court, a, a former public defender, it's. I'm really excited to see her contribution to the court. We're being realistic. I think most of her contribution, at least in these early years, are going to be in writing really powerful dissents. But even that has impact. And so that is something to look forward to. Absolutely. I think, yeah, it definitely is. I wouldn't underestimate that old adage that, you know, today's dissents are the next generation's majority opinions. So, you know, I look forward to seeing what Justice Jackson. All right, let's just, we're just going to dive right in. Uh, And Lindsay, we're going to start with one that could be pretty, it it may consume a lot of attention this term because it has just enormous consequences for democracy. And I think we're all really, really cynical about it. So let's just, let's just dive right into this. And the case I'm talking about is Merrill v. Milligan. So fill us in on this. What is this case about? And why why are we so scared? Sure. Well, you know, regular listeners of Broken Law know we've been talking about redistricting now for over a year and have said that there are legal battles that would be undoubtedly arising. And here we are. 
they have arisen and they are now at the court. And so Merrill v. Milligan is a case that comes out of Alabama. There was a challenge to Alabama's redistricting plan, which drew district maps for their seven congressional seats. They drew them in such a way that only one represented or was likely to represent a majority of Black voters, even though the numbers very much indicated (laughs) that there should be at least two. A lower court of three judges found that it illegally diluted Black voters' power. And I want to highlight that is two Trump appointees and one Clinton appointee who reached that conclusion. So this wasn't an opinion that was, you know, you happen to get the right Which panel. tells you it is extremely gerrymandered. This was not a little gerrymandering. Yeah. This was blatant. It was very blatant. And there was enough time for it to be fixed. What the lower court had asked for was that the state legislature be given another chance to, to redraw the maps. And if they still failed to do so in a way that was legal, that they would appoint a special master. And what happened was the state legislature went running to the Supreme Court and asked for that decision to be put on hold. The court obliged and said, no, we're going to we're going to put this on hold and we'll hear it next term. And the after the election. Exactly. The practical impact of that is that this very gerrymandered map, a map that a federal court has found to be an illegal dilution of Black voters' power in Alabama will be in effect for the midterm elections. And so what we're really talking about now is two things. One, whether or not this map withstands and and keeps going into future election cycles until the next census. And two, what remains of the power of the Voting Rights Act, and in particular, Section 2, which is the section that deals with racial discrimination at the polls. This challenge was brought under Section 2, which was also the subject of a case that we've discussed on this podcast, Brnovich, and is kind of Redistricting is the last little bit of of power that Section 2 has had, and we may see it struck down as well. And so we are all holding our breath to see what remains of the power of the Voting Rights Act. Yeah, so this is about racial gerrymandering. The court previously weighed in on partisan gerrymandering in 2019 in the case Rucho v. Common Cause. Can you just remind us how that case turned out? Yeah, absolutely. That was a 5-4 decision that found that partisan gerrymandering claims present a political question that is beyond the reach of the federal courts. Oh, how convenient. (laughs) It it took the courts out of the business of dealing with partisan gerrymandering claims and saying that that was not something that they were properly positioned to take on. Which basically means they okayed partisan gerrymandering by saying, oh, we're not going to intervene here. It, it certainly said we're definitely not getting involved. And states have taken them up on that opportunity. And one of the things that is particularly challenging, and I know we've we've had others on to talk about this on the podcast, is that oftentimes in American politics, racial gerrymandering claims and partisan gerrymandering claims are really tough to sort out and to, to pull apart because of the voting patterns of the American populace. And so they took themselves out of partisan gerrymandering claims, and we are seeing a lot of states put together really, really bad maps for voters of color and just claiming this is within our prerogative to get into partisan gerrymandering. That's all we're doing. As long as they can give themselves a fig leaf then they're perfectly within their power to do so at the federal under federal constitutional provisions and law. And so I I want to tee up. So that was a 5-4 case. 
Justice Roberts wrote for the majority there. Justice Kagan authored the dissent, which she read from the bench back in those pre-COVID times. And her opinion laid out a roadmap for advocates to use in challenging partisan gerrymanders under state constitutional protections, which is something that advocates in several states have taken up. They have gone to state courts and asked for state courts to weigh in on state constitutional protection. And as your spoiler alert for what we're going to talk about next, that's not being well received by conservatives either. So the the case in Rucho really set up both Merrill v. Milligan and also Moore versus Harper. And so things are looking pretty bleak, but what we are hopeful for is that there will still be some power with the Voting Rights Act, either because the court leaves some intact or because Congress steps in and and reauthorizes the Voting Rights Act of the past or takes other legislative action. There's a lot of proposals right now, but the, the court is poised to do some damage here. Yeah, it'll be interesting. Dobbs certainly, I think put a lot of energy into Congress in terms of codifying Roe into federal law. It'll be interesting if, as this case moves through the Supreme Court, if you see renewed energy in Congress to pass comprehensive voting rights legislation. But you hinted at it. Let's turn to Moore v. Harper. What is this case about? Yeah, this case takes us back to North Carolina for more redistricting fun. And at issue in this case is whether the North Carolina Supreme Court has the power to strike down the state legislature's gerrymandered congressional map, which the state Supreme Court found violated the state constitution. So this is a partisan gerrymandering case. It's one that was taken up, you know, they they took Justice Kagan's advice and challenged under the state constitution and the state Supreme Court agreed with them. And to give you a sense of how gerrymandered the map is, if North Carolinians voted exactly 50-50 for Democrat and Republican candidates, 10 of the 14 states would go to Republicans. And so the court That's found- crazy. Yeah, it, it shows you just how far the gerrymanders go in trying to concentrate power at the state legislature. It's undemocratic. It's, I mean, that's just outrageous. It's wildly undemocratic, and it's done with purpose, right? And so the, the thing that the two Republican legislators who ran to the court and asked for relief um, asked is, you know, they want to have their map reinstated. And their theory of the case is that under Article 2 of the U.S. Constitution, state legislature's power in regulating federal elections is almost absolute when it comes to state courts and state constitutions. And so what they're doing is both gerrymandering themselves into some pretty significant advantages and then turning around and saying, and only we have the power to deal with the regulations on these elections when it comes to state actors. And so it's a, it's a one-two punch of concentrating power and then retrenching that power. So this reference to Article 2 that you noted, this is what is known as the independent state legislative theory? Yeah, that's right. It is the theory that under the times, places, and manner clause of the U.S. Constitution, that only the state legislature has the power to regulate federal elections and state courts have no power to, to intervene or to provide relief. It has its roots in Chief Justice William Rehnquist's concurrence in Bush v. Gore, that classic that we continue to, to live in the shadow of. And there, Rehnquist wrote that the recount order by the state court that was at issue should be stopped because it went against the deadlines for post-election activity that the state legislature had passed. 
Yeah, this is not a term that's well known. Yeah. And quite frankly, it's not a term that should be well known. It's not based in history. I want to just delve into this because I do think this is a term that people are going to start hearing more of, especially if the court ends up validating it in this decision. But help me underscore, this is a theory, right? I And to call it a theory feels generous. It's a fiction. <laughs> it is... Uh, you know, you will hear the term doctrine thrown around by proponents, which is, you know, marketing. I, they're doing that. They're doing ex- what they that do. is marketing. Yeah. That, yes, that's exactly what that is. That is not what you're going to hear in law school. It's it certainly, well, for now. And so, you know, what we're seeing is what was considered a pretty fringe theory when it was brought up by. By Rehnquist in Bush v. Gore, it laid dormant for a while. And now you fast forward to another hotly contested presidential election that didn't go the way that conservatives wanted it to go. And here we are with theory resurrected, I should say. And as you mentioned, it is not based in history. It is not even like even just a plain reading of what you're seeing doesn't make sense. It is to, to say it's a fringe theory is even giving it a little bit more credit, yeah. but that's where we are at, at this moment yeah. with the court. It's a fringe theory and it's a terrifying one at that. Yeah. Talk to me about the consequence of this. If the Supreme Court says, oh no, this is a real thing and declares it a doctrine and says that state legislatures really do have the final say on electoral ma- matters and state courts just get to sit by, you know, they get to stand on the sidelines and wave. What's the consequence of that? Well, you know, it, a lot of it's going to depend on what the court actually said, because this is a completely untested theory at the court. And very little is written, like we're getting some recent scholarship now, but this is not something that someone's picking up of, off a shelf from, you know, the 1800s. Like we're we're still kind of figuring out what the contours of this theory mean. But if they come in and, you know, take a maximalist approach, which they have been tending to do, and say... State courts have no ability to dictate federal elections in any way that goes against what the state legislature has has mandated. What we're going to see are a complete avenue being shut for voting rights advocates. So now state courts are not even a place of refuge in the places where they might be considered. So gerrymandering, you'd have no judicial recourse because the federal court, the Supreme Court has said you can't come to the federal courts. It's a political question. And then you're going to say state courts also have no authority. So you, voters would have no recourse. Certainly on partisan gerrymandering claims. And depending on how Merrill v. Milligan goes, yes, maybe also on on all gerrymandering claims. And I think that what you're going to see is more language like we saw out of Dobbs, if it goes this way, that's basically like, well, voters can voters can weigh in if yeah. they don't like how this is going. Without the any voters reference. that are <laughs> voting in gerrymander districts, they can vote. Yeah, if they can turn out at rates like nine or ten percent higher in terms of partisan advantage, then sure, maybe, maybe they can weigh in. But it is a very dangerous theory that really goes against basic concepts of federalism, of democracy, of, you know, separation of powers. It it expands the role of federal courts in some way, but that really, as we've seen, can be not that fruitful (laughs) for voting rights plaintiffs. Especially not with this Supreme Court. Yeah, absolutely. Great. I am (laughs) sufficiently 
terrified. So, Christopher, <laughs> yes. let's talk let's, death penalty. Let's liven up because in this, this room, make we, it a little bit happier, right? We're just, yeah. we're just filled with upbeat topics right. today, and I'm laughing because crying is my alternative. <laughs> All right, so there's two death penalty cases we're going to talk about. One is Cruz v. Arizona, and the other is Reed v. Gortz. Yep. Fill me in on these two cases. Yeah, so, you know, before I talk about these cases, just one thing I want to point out or note is that, you know, a lot of the court's most consequential action around the death penalty now and in the past several years is through its emergency docket or what's popularly become known as the shadow docket. Steve Vladek, who's a law professor at UT Law. And has been on Broken Law before. And has been on Broken Law before. Last week on Twitter, he observed that after the court cleared the way for the execution of Alan Miller by Alabama, which ended up being a botched execution, which was pretty horrible in and of itself. But he noted that this had been the 12th time since July 2020 that the justices on the Supreme Court had granted emergency relief to allow an execution to proceed that a lower court had blocked. And this was 11 of those 12 times the court allowed the execution to proceed with no explanation. So essentially, this court is, you know, even when a lower court who's really like in the midst of like understanding what the issues are in this case has said like, no, we should wait. We shouldn't execute this person right now. The Supreme Court is coming in and going, nope. Yeah, this is a very pro-death penalty court. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's going on that, that you know, folks that, that, you know, even court watchers might not be aware of if they're not watching the shadow doc. If you're not watching the shadow docket and seeing what's happening. Or even if you um, are watching the shadow docket, there's not a lot right. to watch. Right. Yep. There's not a lot of explanation it's, anyway. There's consequence. Right. It comes but and goes. Right. It's not a lot right. to read. Yep. So so there's there's all that. And then there are a couple of cases on the docket this fall. One is directly challenging a death sentence and the other death penalty adjacent, but but pretty important nevertheless. So the the first case, the the case that directly deals with a death sentence, that's Cruz v. Arizona. So John Cruz was sentenced to death in Arizona in 2005. If you'll bear with me, about a decade before that in 1994, in a case called Simmons v. South Carolina, the U.S. Supreme Court held that when a defendant's future dangerousness is at issue in the death penalty phase of the trial, so when the prosecutor is telling the jury, you should sentence this person to death because they are so dangerous that, you know, they can't be allowed to live anymore. It would be bad for society. It'll be dangerous for our community. So when a prosecutor makes that argument, the Supreme Court said that a, de- a defendant has a due process right to inform the jury that they would be ineligible for parole if not sentenced to death. So basically, the defense attorney can say, even if you think he's dangerous or she's dangerous, they will be in prison for the rest of their life. And that's important because most states have done away with parole. And certainly in those states where the death penalty is on the table, the alternative is going to be life without parole. And, you know, it makes sense. The idea is the jury should know that, you know, arguments of future dangerousness, you know, are tempered by the fact that these people will rightly or wrongly be in prison until they until they die. So despite the fact that he was tried a decade after this Supreme Court, this this pretty clear Supreme Court precedent existed, John Cruz didn't have the opportunity to make that argument, mostly because the Arizona Supreme Court refused to apply Simmons in Arizona, claiming that it didn't apply to Arizona, even though in 1994, 
Arizona eliminated parole, and if you didn't get it, if you got it, if you didn't get a death sentence, you would get life without parole. And in Cruz's case, not only did they not allow him to inform the jury that he would not be eligible for parole if he was not sentenced to death, the judge in that case instructed the jury, and this is a quote, that if not executed, Cruz could face quote life imprisonment with a possibility of parole. The judge lied. The judge lied or was incorrect. I, I, yes, essentially the judge. Whether knowingly or unknowingly, whether knowingly or unknowingly, facts. he misstated facts. And, you know, as a result, maybe not as, as a direct result, but, you know, Mr. Cruz was then sentenced to death. And because the Arizona Supreme Court refused to comply with Simmons, they denied Cruz relief. And Arizona's behavior was so egregious in refusing to comply with this precedent that in 2013, in a separate case, the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court, essentially rebuked Arizona with a summary reversal in a case called Lynch v. Arizona. They're like, no, no, Simmons absolutely applies to you. You need to start treating it as applicable. But that was to no avail for Mr. Cruz because the Arizona Supreme Court then said that based on these procedural vagaries in John Cruz's case, he'd, he had exhausted his direct appeals. He was in what's called co- collateral review in the, at the state level, which is, is known as habeas review at the federal level. And the Arizona Supreme Court said that Lynch didn't it was not a significant change in the law. It was a significant change in the application of the law. And under Arizona procedural rules, that did not permit him to challenge his conviction because it wasn't a change in the law. It was just in the application I'm of so, the law. What is um, the difference? <laughs> so they're saying this is not and this is not new law. The law always existed. It's just the way that the law is being applied. It's it is a distinction without a difference, Jeannie. It's and it's a way for the Arizona Supreme Court to try to make sure that John Cruz is executed because as they've demonstrated over the past 30 years now, they're they're really committed yeah, to Yeah, Arizona really likes <laughs> to the not death allowing, penalty. They do. So in addition to them playing fast and loose with this, like, not a different law, just a different application of existing law, the fact of the matter is that what Arizona is doing is in direct violation to federal law. They should be treating Lynch as a settled rule that allows for Cruz to pursue a collateral review. And then forcing him to make this decision between whether it is settled law or new law actually sets him up for failure at the federal level as well. So it basically is putting Cruz in a catch-22. And all of these procedural vagaries are, are sort of like complicated, but like the simple principle is he had a right to tell the jury that he would never be a free yeah. man, if con- even if they did not sentence him to death. And Arizona took that right away from him. And they're doing everything they possibly can to prevent him from exercising that right. And really the principle, my concern with this case, given how pro-death penalty the United States Supreme Court seems now, and given the way that the court has been behaving recently, my concern is that the principle that this case will end up standing for 
if they side with if the court sides with Arizona is that if you wait long enough, if you oppose a court decision that you don't like long enough, eventually you can prevail when a court that is ideologically aligned with your goals, you know, ends up, you know, coming into existence. And, you know, it's, 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 it's this case now and all the other cases that will follow this. It's, it's really kind of a startling and frightening idea that Arizona would be rewarded for 30 years of basically like spitting in the, in the Supreme Court's face. I don't know what, what does that say about the rule of law and the role of this court at all? Yeah. And I, I think, to that point, one of the real concerns about this court is it does not care about precedent. It doesn't. I mean, it's willing to do away with precedent in in order to achieve politically expedient goals for the conservative legal movement. Which begs the question, if you have a court that is no longer bound by precedent, what makes it any different from just a purely partisan political branch? Exactly. Exactly. And I mean, I, and I think that that's, I, as you said, as we talked about at the beginning, I think that that's what a lot of people are beginning to realize. And it's having a, a, a real effect on the court's legitimacy. So that's Cruz v. Arizona. Talk to me about Reed v. Gortz. Reed v. Gortz, it's actually, so this is like a death penalty adjacent case. The actual question in the case is whether the statute of limitations begins to run on a Section 1983 case seeking DNA testing. So Section 1983 is a pretty broad civil rights statute. It was enacted during the Reconstruction era, and it was designed to provide a federal remedy for people who suffered a constitutional or, or federal constitutional or statutory deprivation of their rights at the hands of state or local governments or officials. Mostly these days we're hearing about Section 1983 when it comes to police brutality and the idea that, you know, the limits on the availability of Section 1983 because of so-called qualified immunity, this judicially created idea that limits the availability of Section 1983. Now, this case isn't dealing with the idea of like police brutality. This is, you know, essentially the court in a case in 2011 called Skinner v. Switzer held that state prisoners can pursue claims for DNA testing under Section 1983 if they can show that the governing state law denied them procedural due process. So basically, if the process for trying to get DNA testing of evidence is not sufficient at the state level, then you can file a Section 1983 claim and try to get a federal court to compel the state to allow you to get the DNA testing that you're asking for. So this case is actually about the statute of limitations. It's not even about like the underlying claim. It's about how long you have you know, after you've been denied the DNA testing, how long do you have to file your Section 1983 claim and, and pursue that claim? So in in this case, Rodney Reed was sentenced to death in Texas in 1998. In 2014, Reed requested that certain crime scene evidence be tested for DNA under Texas law. In November of that same year, November of 2014, the trial court denied this request. So Reed did what you do in these situations, and he appealed that decision. And through the appeals process in October 2017, Texas's like highest court of last resort for criminal matters denied his appeal. So less than two years after that, um, in April 2019, Reed brought his Section 1983 claim. 
everyone agrees that there is a two-year statute of limitations for bringing a Section 1983 claim in these situations. The disagreement is whether, in this case, the statute of limitations began to run in November of 2014, when the trial court said, no, you can't have this testing, or in October of 2017, when the court that made the final decision said, no, you definitely cannot have this this testing. And, you know, both a federal district court and the Fifth Circuit dismissed Reed's claims based on this statute of limitations, but there is a, a, a circuit split. The Eleventh Circuit had held that the statute of limitations does not begin tolling until the state appeals process concludes. And, you know, that's the position that really makes the most amount of sense if you think about it. If a Section 1983 action is challenging, a state law procedure is inadequate. It's really dependent on the state's highest court to determine, you know, what that law is. The, a trial court is not is not an arbiter of what the law is. It is not the final arbiter. And so until the state's highest court makes that decision, there's really nothing for, there's no Section 1983 claim that exists yet. So there, it's very much reliant on, you know, that, that court's decision. And again, this is, I think, a very simple case when you look at the facts and you look at the the posture the question is what will this court do will if they had a restrained supreme court it would right. be a very simple narrow question right i mean and the idea is that, i mean you even look at what the, what is the underlying stat the underlying statute is about vindicating constitutional rights and the idea that you would increase the level of difficulty in achieving that by creating this like weird arbitrary start for your statute of limitations just does not serve the the purpose or intent of Section 1983. Not that the Supreme Court hasn't already done extreme violence to Section 1983, which should be, as I said, a very broad civil rights statute that has been whittled down through years of, of bad decisions. Is it fair to say then that if the court were to come down and say, no, the statute of limitation starts earlier at this random time of our so choosing, that would have pretty broad consequences Beyond, you know, the specifics of this case, but to all 1983 claims. Right. Yes. No. I mean, it would definitely create this this difficulty because you would have, you know, you would be appealing, you know, in, in any 1983 case, you would be appealing the trial court's decision while also sort of pursuing this like separate action in federal court. And you can imagine a federal court saying like, but you are still yeah. in the process of like there's and, you know. I feel also that this Supreme Court has done this one two step many times before where they're like this is the rule but oh also the rule creates an impossibility of like ever actually yeah. being able to you know achieve the aims of the yeah. particular statute so this court seems just to not care about the practical implications of their decisions. They no. like to think of a hypothetical and say, well, the hypothetical works, right, you know, right. irregardless um, of, of yeah. real life. Yeah. And I mean, and keep in mind, these are both cases in which, you know, there are people who are, who could potentially die in order yeah. to preserve some sort of like procedural nicety. It only begs the question, why do we have the death penalty anymore? Like that, it should not, it, we, should, we should not be making those trade-offs ever. Yeah. It's, it, it scares me to think of the combination of states like Texas and Arizona in tandem with the Supreme Court on issues of the death penalty, because it just feels like you have forces 
whose sole interest is to expedite the execution process. Right. While while most of the nation is rejecting the death penalty and like moving away from it, just yeah. these little pockets are are, are sort are of unnaturally preserving resistant. it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and you have to think that that's not random, that the fact that the momentum in this country is towards abolition is motivating the states that retain the death penalty to retain it and right. use it. They're it's really vile. Yeah. yeah. It's inhumane. It's disgusting. You're listening to Broken Law, brought to you by the American Constitution Society. ACS is a 501c3 nonprofit, nonpartisan organization committed to protecting our democratic legitimacy and supporting laws and legal systems that improve the lives of all people. If you're enjoying Broken Law, consider becoming a member of ACS today. You do not need to be a lawyer to be a member. Our laws and legal systems impact all of us. By joining ACS, you support Broken Law, our work to diversify the federal bench, our advocacy in support of Supreme Court reform, and truth, racial healing, and transformation, and so much more. You also become a member of our nationwide network, which includes over 250 student and lawyer chapters. Join ACS and the progressive legal movement today by visiting our website at acslaw.org backslash membership. And now back to the conversation. All right. Change of topic, because we're just going through them in this episode. If ever, if people need to push pause and take a break and take an emotional lap and go get a cup of coffee, we completely understand. Maybe this is the episode that you listen to in, in doses. Moderate yourself. All right, Lindsay, we're turning to students for fair admissions versus presidents and fellows of Harvard College. And a separate case, Students for Fair Admissions versus University of North Carolina. Very long titles. Both of these are about affirmative action. What are we talking what what are the details here? That's right. And and I, you know, both cases were actually going to be heard as one. The reason that there are two, and you'll see the same plaintiffs for both, is that Justice Jackson, newly appointed to the court, recently completed a term at Harvard College, which is one of the one of the respondents here. And so she is able to participate in the North Carolina case because they split the cases this way. So I'm going to talk about both in one because yeah. really it's the same issues, but I wanted to explain why there were two. And you would expect the, de- the ultimate decisions to be pretty similar. <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't have a magic eight ball, but this one yeah. this one I wouldn't hold my breath yeah. on. There being different outcomes just because of the math. I mean, it, it's you know the same thing that we've been talking about this episode on a number of fronts. One, the math isn't there. So it's not looking great. But also this is another situation where people have been going to the court year after year after year hoping for a different result. And they finally have the court that they think is going to give them that different result. And so what the current case is, is a group that has been funded by a conservative activist who has found students at both Harvard and North Carolina to challenge the admissions policies there. And in particular has teed up for the court um, a 2003 precedent. So we're going to take another whack at precedent. And this one is Grutter v. Bollinger, which at the time in 2003 upheld the University of Michigan Law School's affirmative action admissions policy and allowed for narrowly tailored use of race and admissions decisions to promote student diversity. 
And so they have asked the court to explicitly look at that again, and also to see if there's been a violation of Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, which prevents discrimination based on race, color, or national origin from any institution that receives federal assistance, which both of these universities would qualify as. So there's both a constitutional claim as well as a statutory claim. (laughs) I I feel somewhat naive saying, what's the Supreme Court's precedent on on (laughs) this issue? But I do want to make clear what the precedent is, even if that is just to, you know, lay the groundwork for the Supreme Court to then go ahead and decimate that precedent. Sure. But so, this affirmative action has come before this court multiple times. Many times. Before. Yes. Has um, the court previously been consistent? You know, it's been winnowing in a way, right? So it's been a slowly tapered drop off when it comes to affirmative action, even the 2003 case, which the court's going to take up now, you know, Justice O'Connor wrote the majority and said explicitly in that opinion, that she expected that 25 years from now, the use of racial preferences will no longer be necessary to further the interest of diversity of student populations. If if wishing made it so. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I just, it's really hard to hear that and not think of Roberts and oh, yeah. talking about the VRA not being needed because we have racial equality and life is grand and we all live in fantasy land. We elected our first black president, so everything's fine. We have achieved really, racial I mean, it's, equity it here. It just feels, yeah. it, it really does feel like a fantasy. Even the fantasy, they're still, you know, what, it's 2020. They're still ahead of schedule even for that. So she said 25 years. We're not even waiting the 25 years. We're going to just go ahead now and hear this case now. And it's really unfortunate because, you know, the, the way that the court had allowed programs to be, you know, constitutional or permissible in the past was to say, okay, you can't have quotas. We're not going to allow quotas and we're not going to allow you to explicitly allow for race in consideration by itself. It has to be what they call a plus factor or just kind of part of the holistic. It's one consideration. It's one consideration. Of, of many. But it's really important to remember that what these policies by some are hoping to address is generations of discrimination when it comes to accesses of education. And in those 25 years or less than since the Grutter decision, it's not like they've gotten rid of legacy admissions. It's not like they've gotten rid of many other ways in which race is an implicit factor in admissions. What the groups that are coming before the court now, particularly this one that's funded by a conservative who likes to and that, push that's the issue. students for fair admissions. Like this yeah. is an organization created to do exactly this, to challenge affirmative action. Exactly right. You know, we had a really great program in last year because this case has been pending for a while now. We had a really great program last year where Professor Vinay Harpalani of New Mexico said, you know, it it is... Hard to look at the case and not see it as a cynical play. You know, this particular conservative activist went and found Asian American students on campus to come and bring this case before the court. And it flies in the face of the great amount of advancement that these policies have done for all students of color, including Asian American students. And so it's the politics of this case in particular are awful. And it's another instance of, you know, one student backed by often activists going to the court again and again and again, 
and they had been achieving some success in winnowing it down. But the court, you know, as recently as like five years ago, said, no, no, these universities are doing what we asked them to do. They're tailoring their policies in such a way that this is permissible and it's fine. And here we are again. We're, we're, we're teeing up another case where the lower court found that the policies that were enacted were explicitly blessed by the court's analysis. And now the court's willing to just throw it out. It's a really good point in that it feels like we're going to keep confronting Supreme Court terms that get worse and worse and worse because of the litigants that are now inspired to bring cases, right? Litigants that are like, we're not going to, we're not going to chance going to the Supreme Court and, and losing. And suddenly they're like, oh no, no, we're almost 100% certain we can win with this court. And so you're going to start seeing even more dangerous cases litigated. Well, and the courts even, I would go one step further in saying encouraging such a practice by inviting. Yeah. By, you know, we've referenced it multiple times just on this podcast. The, the fact that the justices will say, well, this is an area of significant controversy, even though it's been decided the same way 15 times because someone's willing to keep bringing the case before the court, they're willing to say, this is a gray area. Let's revisit it. And now they're basically telling you what what cases they want to take, like bring us these issues. We want to change the precedent and telling you, listen, just keep going. Like, even if it doesn't work this time, it will lay the groundwork for us to bring it back in the future and and to do what you're asking us to do. And so the court has become an active participant in greenlighting some of these cases, even though it's well settled precedent. I'm glad you use that word because I. I think progressive or liberal judges often get labeled activist judges, which is, to be honest, laughable in the world that we live in now. We have the most activist Supreme Court uh, of our modern era or ever, and it is because it's it's packed with conservative ideologues. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, any any other note on those two cases? No, I would say, you know, it's one that came up the before the court last term. They asked for the Solicitor General's opinion and kind of kicked it down the road for this term. It's it's another case this term that is really explicitly dealing with race. You know, if, yeah. it, and I think that we are going to see that in a number of cases that come before this court. I think that the conservatives on this court are are really wanting the opportunity to say, we're not considering race in ways that you want to anymore. Which is why the racial gerrymandering case is so concerning. Absolutely. If this court wants to stand up and say, we're above race, I mean, they could they could take take that to a whole host of issues to really great detriment. Exactly right. And so I think it's really important to see these cases as a whole for this yeah. term. Yeah. I appreciate you bringing up that that theme, that trend, because I really do think that's... That is very telling in a very unfortunate way. Christopher, we're going to end with... More uplift? Yes! (laughs) More reason that I'm going to just devour the the chocolate pie that's left in my fridge after this. All right. 303 Creative LLC v. Ellenis. What is this Hmm. about? So this case is, it's essentially a sequel to Masterpiece Cake Shop, which if folks remember, that was a 2018 Supreme Court case. 
in which the court was asked whether a business has a constitutional right to discriminate based on its owner's religious beliefs or freedom of expression or potentially freedom from compelled expression. So the law in question, both in Masterpiece and in 303 Creative, is the Colorado Anti-Discrimination Act, which prohibits businesses from discriminating, including on the basis of sexual orientation. The law itself precisely makes it unlawful, quote, to refuse, withhold from, or deny to any individual or group because of disability, race, creed, color, sex, sexual orientation, marital status, national origin, or ancestry, the full and equal enjoyment of the goods, services, facilities, privileges, advantages, and accommodations of a place of public accommodation. So basically, it's saying, if you put yourself out, if you're a business saying, like, I have a service, I have a good, I want to sell to people, you have to make it available to everyone. You can't, like, decide that you don't like a certain class of people and refuse to serve them. Which, I mean, to all businesses, right? Like, I think it's easy. The best way to I think of this is I think of a diner. Right. A diner can't stand at the door and say, we're going to give eggs to this customer, but oh, no, we're not going to serve food to you. Exactly. Yes. It, that, is, that is the perfect example. I think a restaurant is a very like powerful example because it's so visceral. Imagine someone standing at a door being like, nope, not you. Because we've lived I, through it, that, right? We've yes, lived through we segregation. Yes. And, and one the, of the reasons we have non-discrimination laws is right. so we don't go back yes. there. Yes. There is a social compact that's... 50 plus years old that we've decided that's that's bad policy to allow that to happen. But here we are. So in Masterpiece, that was a 7-2 decision with Justice Sotomayor and Justice Ginsburg dissenting, where the court essentially punted on the decision, unfortunately. And, it, and that's how it was described at the time, right? Was yes. the court just ducking the issue, basically? Yes. The One of the commissioners on the Colorado Civil Rights Commission essentially had said, like, I hate when folks use their religious beliefs to discriminate, to justify things like slavery and the Holocaust. And I think Certainly, the invocation of slavery in the Holocaust was so inflammatory that the court was able to like glom onto that and be like, oh, this shows some hostility towards religion. They weren't neutral even in the way they, they were evaluating this case. So we're not going to make a decision about the constitutional claims. We're just going to say their behavior was so egregious that they need to overturn this particular decision because there was like clear animosity towards religion. So they made it about procedure, which is always a way to kind of negate the the broader issue. Right, right. So in which case, like, we were waiting for this case. If exactly. You knew, we, you knew it was coming back. Yes. There was a, I mean, Masterpiece, the, the owner of Masterpiece actually is sort of like pursuing litigation as well. This just ended up happening to happen to get to the, to the court first. So in this case, we're not talking about cakes. We're talking about websites. The petitioner is, in this case, Lori Smith, and as you mentioned, her li- limited liability company, 303 Creative. They brought a suit in federal court because 303 Creative wanted to start offering website design services for people who were getting married. But they wanted to include on their business website a statement that they would not design websites for same-sex marriages. They wanted to blatantly um, discriminate. Right. And they wanted to like put that statement on their website. So um, this is the equivalent of a diner putting a sign on exactly. the window that says LGBTQ members are not welcome. Absolutely. And obviously the Colorado Anti-Discrimination Act makes that unlawful. But 
Nobody had asked her to make a website yet. Nobody had, she hadn't, she had no customers yet, but she went to federal court and said like, hey, you know, I shouldn't be bound by this. I have a right to my personal beliefs and I shouldn't be forced to, to, to serve folks that I don't want to serve. So 303 Creative, they lost in the district court. They lost in the 10th Circuit. And so they petitioned uh, with the Supreme Court, and they asked the court to consider three questions. They asked the court to consider whether the the anti-discrimination law violated their First Amendment freedom of expression, whether it violated their First Amendment freedom, free exercise of religion. And they also asked the court whether they, the court itself should consider overruling a case called Employment Division v. Smith, which is a seminal 1990 case, which essentially holds to just to sort of like put it in its simplest terms that government action usually doesn't violate the free exercise clause as long as they as long as those actions are neutral and apply to everyone. So in this case, it's a neutral law. You can't discriminate based on sexual orientation, regardless of what a person's sexual orientation is, and it applies to everybody. And so 303 Creative was like, you should consider overruling that. Now, interestingly, the court only granted That's cert- all this Supreme Court needs, honestly, to right. <laughs> overturn well, precedent. It, that's you'd, its you'd favorite think, pastime. But that's so the, the interesting thing in this case, though, is that the court only granted cert on the first question, on the free expression question. They didn't take up the opportunity to overrule employment division or take up the question of the free exercise of religion question. And the way that the court framed the issue and, and asked folks to, to address the issue is. This is a direct quote from the grant of cert, whether applying a public accommodation law to compel an artist to speak or stay silent violates the free speech clause of the First Amendment. And I think there's a little bit to unpack with the way that they framed that. First of all, the question as presented talks about an artist, but as I mentioned, the petitioner who would be compelled to adhere to Colorado's anti-discrimination law is 303 Creative. It's a not business. an individual, it's, it's not, a business. It's a limited liability company. It's a public accommodation that's holding itself out as a service for hire. I mean, we're not talking about forcing Norman Rockwell to paint a bondage scene. This is this is a very different thing. And so and you know, I don't I don't mean to be glib about that. And there are certainly First Amendment considerations when it comes to compelling speech, but you know, at the end of the day, like I said, we're talking about a business that's providing a service. And this 50-plus-year-old social compact that we've agreed that, you know, society works better when we don't bar a class of people from being able to participate in our economy. So, you know, I think the court framed the, the question this way very purposefully. They're using the language of art instead of commerce. And they're using principles of free expression instead of free exercise of religion, sort of as an effort to co-opt, you know, progressive ideas about hostilities towards censorship, this idea of like banning books and things, and then also like the value of artistic expression. Because, you know, the other way that this would be presented, particularly if you were talking about freedom of religion, is that certain people should be immune to the law because of their religious beliefs, right? So in some ways, I think the court is like trying to, you know, hoist progressives on their own petard by being like, oh, look, this is an artist. And you're trying to like force her to do something. They don't want us to think of the diner, right? I right, mean, they, exactly. They really want us to think of like yeah. a re- an independent artist who 
is surviving off their art and is working off commissions. Exactly. And that's, you know, and, you know, the thing is, Lori Smith is a, a person and she is the owner of 303 Creative, but she made the decision to incorporate it as a limited liability company. There are benefits to that, but there are also responsibilities as a result of that. And, you know, no one's asking her in her personal capacity to do things. They're asking her as a business owner who is like putting herself out there to serve her community, to serve the community in a non-discriminatory way. And, you know, there's a, a couple of other things that are happening in the case. As I mentioned she actually hasn't started providing this service. This um, is a hypothetical. This is absolutely a hypothetical. So there were there was an option for this for the court to to dismiss this case based on standing and on ripeness, but they chose to take the case anyways even though this is a hypothetical. And you know, I, I think the other thing one of the arguments that 303 Creative has been making as it's wended its way up to the Supreme Court, which is striking and terrible is this argument that we're not discriminating against LGBTQ people. We'll, we'd be happy to make them a website. We'd even be happy to make them a wedding website if they were marrying a person of the opposite sex. <laughs> we are just... I'm sorry. We are just... <laughs> yes. So we are just saying if they want to marry a person of the same sex, we don't want their business. And that is a... I mean, that is echoes of defending anti-miscegenation laws based on the idea that like it affects all races the same no race can like marry outside their race so it's not racially discriminatory and it's like well no it is and we all know that and even this court in a case just a couple of years ago in Bostock when they recognized that title 7 protected folks against discrimination based on a sexual orientation and gender expression dispatched with this argument they're like no no it's it's yeah. <laughs> you can't say like you're treating everybody the same when like one class yeah. of people is and actually and that was Gorsuch writing effectively that being, opinion. exactly yes so you know, the again, the big concern here is that the court and the way that they have framed the issue and the way that they 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 seem to want to yeah. take up this case again has its has an agenda. Is this so that the court can say like we're not we're not backpedaling on our LGBTQ rights positions, right? We're not backpedaling on Bostock. We're affirming the First Amendment. This is about free speech. It's not about LGBTQ rights. I think that absolutely they they want this to be about free expression, not about LGBTQ rights. And, you know, one of the easy arguments against these types of challenges is like, if we were talking about racial discrimination, if we were talking about discrimination based on yeah. religion, if they, if, if, if there was like an anti-papist who was like, I'm not going to do wedding websites for Catholics because I believe that, you know, right. Catholics are terrible. That just strikes us as horrible. And we're like, well, there's no way that that could be justified. So clearly, you know, this can't be justified either. Unfortunately, I think that this court is all too willing to yeah. find a way of making a distinction between those. I don't think, I don't think this is a, I, I mean, look, I'm, I'm guessing here, right? <laughs> But I don't think this is a slippery slope to eliminating all anti-discrimination laws. I think that this court will find a way to distinguish longstanding anti-discrimination laws based on race and on religion. Yeah. I think that 
but I think that that's like equally harmful in that it's essentially saying that you can that, parse discrimination that you can parse laws. Discrimination, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, you know, we'll see what. Uh, <laughs> I agree. The court is going to try and make this about freedom of expression, but mm-hmm. this is about LGBTQ rights. That's that is why this person is discriminating. Yes, absolutely. What's the I mean, impact. The, on LGBTQ rights broadly, if the court says, oh, actually, discrimination is okay, as long as you claim that it's about freedom of expression. Right. I mean, then it's a free-for-all, right? You know, what are the what are the limits? At what point, what is, what is freedom of expression and what is actual commerce, right? You can argue that a web designer is, it's, it's an expressive activity, is Cooking eggs and, and like, eggs and bacon expressive. Like did right, a mural would, on their exa- lunch counter and they're like, oh, but this is art and we right, only want I mean, certain people to yeah, I mean you could even argue like my food is like my, my, yeah. my cooking is a creation. So uh, you know, and you know, one of the other arguments that's thrown out that that the petitioner throws out and she says or it three oh three says specifically they that they would include is they they would be happy to find someone who would do the a website for a same sex couple but the fact of the matter is that then we're going into segregation territories where it's like oh no we have places for you right they're just horrible right and the and and the the progress we have made largely depends on these protections existing once these protections are lost you know will the can we rely on those other opportunities to be available and so it's you know i I think that you know it's it's disingenuous to claim that they're protecting artistic rights here um they're and uh, and to be honest they don't think they're protecting artistic expression they are looking for a reason to discriminate or they're looking for a justification Yes, they're looking for a way to achieve this the same. Well, I am thoroughly depressed. We usually end these episodes with a call to action, but actually what I want to say and have Christopher and Lindsay opine on this is for listeners who feel discouraged, who feel depressed, express that. Like To me, that is the call to action, is that too often I think the Supreme Court has benefited from being perceived as beyond criticism, that it's up somewhere on a hill that we are to defer to the court and never criticize and just wait for decisions to come down from yon high. There needs to be public outrage. There needs to be public debate about these cases. There needs to be robust public discourse about the concerns that we've expressed here about the dangerousness of each of these cases. And so if you're depressed, if you're concerned don't hold that in. Like, take to social media, talk to your friends, write a letter to the editor. The same way that you would write an op-ed about Congress, you can absolutely write about this court. This court should be called out publicly as much as possible. Yeah, I'll I'll just say here, here. I, I would add, you know, one thing that you could do if you're looking for a place to to funnel some of your energy is to not only vote, but make sure that you're voting your entire ballot. There are a lot of ballot initiatives on ballots this year that will deal with a number of the issues we've talked about on this podcast that we've talked about on other episodes of the podcast. And one of the things giving me hope right now is the immense energy that's being funneled into voter registration, particularly among women in the wake of Dobbs. And I, you know, we've talked a lot about gerrymandering and all those things, 
but there are a lot of offices and initiatives on your ballot that are not subject to that pressure. Look at not only your, you know, governor or senator, but like, look at your district attorney, look and see what they're doing on issues like pursuing death penalty charges or on issues like what they're going to deal with abortion when it comes to before them. Look at your secretary of state and see what they're doing to actually expand voter access if you're worried about the state legislature doctrine not doctrine, theory at best. And give yourself grace if you make mistakes like me. And and really make sure that you're educating yourself all the way up and down the ballot. You know, we saw really great signs out of Kansas earlier this year. And I think that it will not be limited to Kansas. Certainly Kansas is not like a progressive hotbed. So I, I, I am hopeful about the energy that I'm seeing among folks as they look around and realize that the court is not going to save us in this moment. And so Make sure that you're voting your whole ballot. Yeah, and I am cognizant that there are folks who get frustrated that the answer to problems is always to vote as if that is a magic solution. And and I get that. But I will say we're, you know, six weeks out from the midterms. This is the time to vote. And the Supreme Court does read the news. The justices do read the news, right? If voters go to the ballot box in November and send a very clear message in opposition to you know, the positions of the Supreme Court, the justices are going to take note of that. This court is not somehow above public criticism. Yeah, I was gonna, I, I've been saying this a lot lately. And I think I said it the last time we talked about the Supreme Court on this podcast, but the Supreme Court doesn't have the power of the purse. It doesn't have an army behind it. It only has its legitimacy. Um, and, and it I doesn't think, even have that and, right now. And, and that's what I'm saying. Like, it's losing its legitimacy. And if there is a resounding political response to what they're doing, both electoral and public opinion, which you alluded to, the the willingness of folks to consider court expansion now because of their lack of faith in the court, I think that that can have an impact and maybe force this court to, to reconsider its warp speed changes in American law and constitutional law and maybe teach them a little bit of modesty. I don't know about that, but I, I hope it increases. <laughs> I hope we see more support for Supreme Court reform because something has to give. Our civil rights, we're not going to recognize them in a few years at this rate. So if there is something to be encouraged by, I am encouraged by the growth and the debate about the Supreme Court, that more people are speaking out that are paying attention to this. So thank you to, for listening to this episode and join in the conversation is what I would say to everyone listening. But thanks again to Christopher and Lindsay. It is always a joy to speak with you both, even, even if it is a super depressing <laughs> conversation. I am glad to be having it with both of you. Thanks for having me. Same, same. (laughs) We will be covering these cases in more depth with future episodes. All these cases are going to have their oral arguments coming up, so we'll be reporting out on some of those. So now is a great time to follow and subscribe to Broken Law if you don't already do so. If you do follow Broken Law, you can help us bring it to more listeners by recommending the show to a friend. That is one way to expand the conversation and bring more more people into the debate. And if you have ideas for future episodes, you can always let us know by emailing us at podcast at acslaw.org and check us out on social media at acslaw. Together, we'll speak truth to power about the law, whose interests it really serves, and whose it does not.